0: Listeners, this is another episode of the Remnant Podcast with me, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. If you want to support groups committed to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise with your charitable giving, you should learn how Donors Trust can simplify your giving. Go to DonorsTrust.org dingo. Right now to get your free Investing in Liberty guide. Again, it costs you nothing to get the free guide. It helps me enormously if you write in DonorsTrust.org slash dingo. And you might actually be able to make the world a better place. So please go to DonorsTrust.org slash dingo. All right, so uh, we're going to do something a little not super different. We've done this before, but we have no official outside guest uh, we figured there was a lot of uh, housekeeping and uh, reader, or I should say listener feedback, to deal with. So we're going to do what we're going to start calling, at least for the time being, Podcast Potpourri, mm-hmm. which means we're going to cover a whole bunch of different subjects. Um, as, as almost usual, as, as frequently happens, I have uh, uh, Jack Butler, my Muensis, uh, which a word I really got to look up at some point, um, and because uh, I could be using it not entirely wrong, but close to wrong. Major Domo, perhaps. Yeah. And we have, uh, uh, we have uh, Michael Pratt of the American Enterprise Institute and the host of the podcast, Filler Words. He said it. He finally said it. Um, well, it's funny. I, I keep meaning it. There's a piece in The Atlantic about filler words that yeah. came out recently, and it, it sort of it finally made, oh, that's the podcast yes. that podcast. Is uh, <laughs> um, that the story
1: of um, or the long the story of um, or something like that?
0: Uh, as, an, as a notorious ummer, I am in favor of any uh, rationalizations or apo- apologias for umming. Um, <laughs> see, there you go. Anyway, so... Uh, I'm kind of proud of the fact. One of the one of the best pieces of feedback I get about this podcast is that we don't actually do very much rank punditry. Uh, there's an enormous amount of rank punditry out there. It's all cable news does, and I find it increasingly boring in my life. And I mean, it's important and it's part of what I do for a living, but it's not why I wanted to do a podcast. And I think one of the reasons why so many people are flocking to podcasts is because they find that sort of carnival stall barking at each other on cable news, um, not just on Fox, but on all of them, uh, to be sort of uh, nutritionally deficient. But I do want to just very quickly chime in and say (laughs) about uh, the defeat of Roy Moore because it was a good thing. And it sucks to lose a Senate seat. It's a bad thing for the Republican Party. But if you really didn't want to lose that Senate seat, maybe it shouldn't have um, worked overtime to get a, uh, you know, theological crank and grifter and constitutional illiterate who then it turned out was uh, uh, credibly accused of uh, treating teenage girls like uh, underripe avocados at the supermarket. And the, you know, the thing is, uh, one of the things I take solace out of all of this, other than being proven right, which is always fun, is just the simple fact that, once again, Steve Bannon is being exposed as the single most overrated, you know, over-mythologized political strategist and political activist in my lifetime. You know, I mean, people used to demonize and elevate Carl Rove beyond, you know, I mean, turn him into a sort of a James Bond supervillain. But at least that guy worked in the White House and and credibly won, you know, two presidential campaigns. Uh, You know, Steve Bannon was fired after a few months. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that he actually won that campaign for for Donald Trump. And since then, he has a record unmatched in uh, political handicapping of picking, I, I think, a a straight run of absolute losers. Has, has he backed anybody who's won anything in any of these primary challenges yet? I don't think so. But, you know, it, it takes it takes sort of a reverse Midas touch where everything you everything you lay your fingers upon turns to fecal matter to put all of your efforts behind people like Paul Nealon and uh, Roy Moore. And the, the the really funny part is that Bannon had nothing to do with Roy Moore winning the nomination in the first place. He parachuted in at the last minute, gave a couple rallies um, for a guy who was going to win anyway, and then took credit for the victory. And then when the allegations that Roy Moore you know was a was a uh, was a jailbait aficionado, he doubled down thinking that it was somehow this point of pride to sort of stick with him because for 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 Bannon, his St. Crispin's Day was the fact that when Donald Trump was accused, uh, when the when the Access Hollywood or whatever that tape was, uh, came out about Donald Trump, Bannon thinks that that was his most glorious moment of honor for sticking with Donald Trump. And he talks about it all the time. And so like a general replaying The Last War, he thought this was going to be this great moment for him. And he just beclowned himself even more. I mean, it's sort of like Foghorn Leghorn walking through a... Prairie of, of garden rakes. So anyway, uh, I think this is good news to the extent that it's the least bad situation that we could have gotten out of this. The one guy I feel almost sorry for is, uh, what's his name? Um, Franken? Al Franken. Because yeah. this guy, you know, he gets he gets forced out of the Senate seat, which is like the only thing in his life that gives him any meaning or sense of, of, of security. And he clearly doesn't think he did what he's been accused of, and he was forced to take one for the team. Also, the Pelosi and Schumer could tee up this—you know—the Republicans admit, you know, uh, pedophiles into their ranks, and they tolerate this stuff. And then Roy Moore loses, and so he's like, you know, the kid who goes to Chuck E. Cheese expecting the birthday party, and no one else shows up. <laughs> I mean, I just anyway, I think that part's sort of glorious, and I shouldn't wallow in my schadenfreude too much because GOP has real problems and conservatism has real problems and Bannon's not going away. But I think this was an interesting moment of clarity and and that's about all the punditry I wanted to get into. But Do you um, think, didn't Franken give himself an out to not actually step down
2: by saying that he would resign in the coming weeks?
0: Yeah, and that's the thing that uh, I thought was interesting yesterday or the day before. We're recording this the morning after. Roy Ragnarok, or whatever you want to call it. That was interesting about the governor of Minnesota announcing who he was going to replace Franken with, and I think it was to sort of remind Franken, (laughs) by the way, you did say you were going to quit, you know? Um, And uh, which is, you know, it's sort of like a, well, that's another thing that's great about Roy Moore from last night. I mean, the whole thing is sort of a pinata. You can bash it from any angle and get some reward. But by refusing to concede last night, he took off the table this great opportunity to have have that be a huge part of the story, have this huge audience, because he thought he was going to be able to contest this or do a recount. Now he can't do a recount unless he pays for it himself, which he's not going to do, because unless it becomes a another one of his bogus grifter fundraising right. schemes, but he'll lose that too. And so now when he eventually concedes, if he concedes at all, it's going to be, you know, it's going to come out at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon one day and it's going to barely get any attention sort of like when Franken finally actually does resign. Right. But anyway. Do you think that a Democrat picking up a Senate seat
2: in a deep red state, is that a sign of real trouble for the Republican Party or is it a sign that they shouldn't run candidates that are like they're women, like they're, like they're scotch, 14 years old and on the rocks?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yes and no. I think already Democrats are wildly over extrapolating from this. I heard Tom Perez on NPR and MSNBC and a couple other places this morning, and this idea that the Jones coalition in Alabama is replicable elsewhere is sort of ludicrous. Uh, I think pa- John Podoritz, who has this interesting niche podcast over at Commentary, he has a good point about this. He says that, you know, the one thing that that Doug Jones and Donald Trump had in common is they had immensely unpopular opponents in an election, and that was what gave them their mandates and their coalitions. And so if you, I think it is almost inconceivable, unless Doug Jones switch party, switches parties or declares himself pro-life, that he doesn't lose this seat the next time right. the election comes up. And that's fine. And so Alabama is going to revert back to red. And maybe this will break the glass ceiling, as it were, a little bit for Democrats in Alabama. But Alabama is still going to be a solidly Republican state for as far as the eye, as far as the eye can see. I think the real lesson out of all this is that if you look at, you know, Virginia, where an establishment candidate ran and lost, or you look at Alabama, where an anti-establishment candidate ran and lost, or you look at New Jersey or Oklahoma and some of these other places, the simple fact is, is that Donald Trump isn't popular enough within the Republican Party. And so, uh, you know, at 34, 35, 36 percent approval rating. That means there are a lot of Republicans who don't approve of the Republican, which means their turnout at minimum will be muted, mm-hmm. particularly in off-year elections where it's normally muted, where your own party doesn't come out. Meanwhile, he is so intensely unpopular among Democrats and lots of independents that you can see the um, the ingredients for a wave coming. And I don't know that the Republicans lose the House. I'd ha- you know. Six months ago, every smart person I knew said that was virtually impossible. Uh, not the House, the Senate. Um, I think it is possible that they lose the House. And what I don't think people really appreciate is if one of the branches of Congress gets subpoena power, and if one, if the Democrats yeah. get subpoena power in one of the branches of Congress, that completely changes how this White House can operate. It puts everybody um, even more in a bunker and, you know, That kind of thing hobbles popular presidencies in a lot of ways. You know, it was a huge problem for Reagan, a huge problem for Bush. It was even a significant but not significant enough problem for Obama. And I think the House conceivably impeaches if they they get control. I don't think the Senate votes to remove them because you just need too many Republicans to do that, barring finding out something terrible.
1: What do you think that the Alabama and Virginia and other results indicate about the replicability of the Trump model or Trumpism as a coherent electoral and ideological prospect uh, to be duplicated elsewhere? Do you think it's now proven to be bunk? Do you think it's too singularly dependent on the idiosyncratic individual that Trump is?
0: I think at minimum, sorry, I'm just turning off my iPad. I didn't know if those sounds were coming out uh, no, you're just hallucinating again. That's probably right. Um, I and mean, we're not even doing a tripping.com ad. Uh, I think, look, I, I think there is such a thing as Trumpism, but it is not an ideological thing. It is a characterological, psychological thing, and it only applies to a single data set, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, the, uh, is Trumpism made flesh, right? And he's the manifestation in this corporeal world of Trumpism. Um, what, he, what Trumpism is not is a political ideology with a coherent set of principles. And we talk about this a lot on this podcast, you know, anybody who has tried to define whether it's intellectuals or would be intellectuals who have, you know, tried to come up with a Trumpism without Trump at American greatness or journal of American, I can't keep all those things straight. They ultimately, they always end up with the same problem is that, you either define a laid out, ideological, political, principled program, or you defend Donald Trump, because Donald Trump doesn't stick to any program. And same way with Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon has this theory of nationalism and all of this potted nonsense that maybe 15, 20 percent of the GOP base really likes in theory, but it is not a governing new ideology. It's not the wave of the future. And whenever he tries to put up candidates, whether it's Roy Moore or Paul Nealon or, you know, any of those sort of uh, or that horrible woman from from Arizona.
1: Kelly Ward. Kelly
0: Ward. It falls apart because it turns out as much as I dislike Donald Trump's rudeness and bluster, people like it or can forgive it in Donald Trump. But they can't forgive in other people. It's not charming in other people. I don't think it's charming in Trump, but they, it's certainly not charming in, some, in other people. It in
1: didn't po- even work for Rubio. Remember when he tried to be Trump for that week? It hasn't punch- worked for anybody, you know, and
0: and and I kind of like what Rubio is doing, because for me, that was sort of the essence of the whole counterpunching thing, but it, it didn't work for him. And so you can't have Trumpism without Trump, um, because Trumpism is a way of describing Trump's own personality and not uh, a a political platform. And Roy Moore was sort of the closest we got to this sort of distilled anti-establishment bile. And it wasn't enough. It, it created more, you know, this is the problem with all this stuff. And this is the point I was making about Trump's unpopularity or disapproval rating. Right now, Trump's strategy of just hugging the base creates more antibodies against the GOP, then it creates supporters of the GOP. And that is the reason why we're setting ourselves up for, um, I believe, a wave election for the Democrats. But we'll see. All right. So we have um, on Twitter and elsewhere, um, on a lot of bathroom stalls around town, I I requested uh, um, questions, comments, gripes, feedback of all kinds. Um, And we have a Huge list here. It's, you know, it's sort of like Donald Trump's tax returns. It reaches the ceiling. But um, Jack and Mike and myself, we've gone through a handful of it. And some of it is eggheady. Some of it is gonzo. Some of it is deeply esoteric. And we're just going to try and run through this stuff um, and see how far we can get with it. So, w- what is the first thing on our action items here, Jack?
1: Uh, the first, well, the first question that was asked that's on this. Chronologically arranged list is. Do you want me to read this verbatim? Does that matter?
0: Yeah, sure. I don't even know what it is, but sure. Okay.
1: Um. Hey, Jonah. My question is on veganism and how you feel about it. I I am 27. This is not me talking. FYI, I'm 24, and I became a conservative over the years by just reading, and it all just seemed like common sense to me. As I started looking more into nutrition and the science behind plant-based eating, it was the same sort of common sense feeling. Once you start reading about how animal agriculture has such a terrible impact on our environment and how awful it is for the animals, it's hard to understand how anyone could support it. The real cost of a Big Mac would be $13 if not for how heavily subsidized the meat industry is and the economics around the meat and dairy industry is straight corporatism. I could talk about this forever. But how do you feel about all this and why do conservatives seem extra hard to talk about on this topic? From John.
0: So look, I want to be respectful uh, because he seems like a sincere, sincere, nice guy and it's a good faith question and all the rest. And I agree with some of it. I I actually a I'm a bit of a critic of industrial farming. I think it's pretty cruel and inhumane. You know, the amount of money it would cost the consumer to have, you know, factory farmed chickens treated a little bit better would be a couple cents. And given how cheap chicken has become in the last fifty years, I, I don't think it is an outrageous, you know, imposition on the American public. Uh, same thing with cattle and all the rest. At the same time, I'm, first of all, not all that convinced that veganism is this glorious health thing. I mean, I lost about 50, 60 pounds a few years ago by um, only, basically only eating meat products.
2: Yes. And um,
0: <laughs> and I, I like meat products. Also, I um, years ago, Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, always would come up with these weird ideas about. Uh, sending me off to do weird stuff and write about it, and I did a few, quite a few pieces along these lines. And one of the things he had me do, he wanted me to spend a month being a vegan, and I think I lasted like eight days. <laughs> and it, 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 it and, I, and I wrote about it. I wrote about my experience, about how I had to give up, because uh, among other things, it oddly filled me with rage. I mean, like, <laughs> just like like Hulk, like you don't want to make me angry kind of rage, and. And also, I think it's sort of a fascinating thing. So I would go through, like, uh, Whole Foods, and I would look at all the vegan stuff, right? And so, and I read a lot of vegan stuff. Um, some of the, I should say, I should just get out there, my old friend Matt Scully has written really movingly on a lot of this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm with him on a lot of stuff. I, I personally think that, like, you know, uh, elephant hunting I get the libertarian arguments for farming elephants so that you make them a resource and all that. I I understand all that, but I think aesthetically and morally, things like elephant hunting are grotesque. Um, Richard Lowry has written about how elephants are
1: probably pretty close to sentient, in addition.
0: No, that's right. And they're they're the second most socially complex societies on Earth after human beings. And and there are these majestic things, and, and I think... A planet without them would be a horrific thing for kids and for everybody. And um, I'm a I'm a passionate defender of charismatic megafauna. Shoot all the deer you want, but, um, but you have
1: a personal vendetta, <laughs> yeah, particularly the
0: ones in my neighborhood. But um, anyway, so that that all that aside, so I do this thing about veganism, and you read all of the stuff, particularly some of the PETA stuff, where like uh, you're not supposed to have bee uh, honey mm-hmm. because honey is produced where the female bee is put, and this is a direct quote that I have always remembered, on an industrial rape rack. Um, and what? Yeah, by, I by kept bees. bees. That's a hundred percent not true.
2: I, 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 I'm not checking. The, I, I,
0: I, later we'll Google it, but yeah. trust me, because I wrote about it, and I remember, I always remember that. And I just thought it was just literally one of the funniest yeah. things that I ever read. And um, good
1: name, good offensive name for a metal band, though.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, sort of a or like some or a really creepy van at like a juggalo concert. No,
2: but um the queen bee eats the male bee. I, I, so like there's <laughs> I I think they mix their metaphors a little. Bit. That's entirely possible. <laughs> you don't um, you didn't see
0: that in bee movie, it, did that. you? <laughs> um but uh but it's so funny anyway, I read all the stuff about the ethics of it. I read all this Paul Singer stuff about how animals have rights. I don't think animals have rights. I think humans have obligations to animals. Uh but animals don't have rights because if um You go down that path, uh, it's just pure chaos to the constitutional order um, and to civilization, but you can make an argument for human obligations to animals. Regardless, the fascinating thing to me was you go down the aisle, like the frozen food section of the vegan department at Whole Foods, and it's all of these things like um, tofu, chicken wings, right, and faux burgers, and the weird disconnect to me, and let me see if I can explain this because I haven't... I wrote this article almost 20 years ago now, but is that ethically, the PETA crowd insists that meat is murder, right? That that it is it is a moral or repugnant thing to do. As as Ingrid Newkirk, I think, once said, it was um, a rat is a pig is a boy or something like rat that. Rat is a
1: pig is a dog is a boy. Right. That's the Wesley Smith book. He titled a book uh, after that quote.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you have this. So that's the ethical argument, right? And yet- All of the fake food is modeled on food that they consider to be murder, right? And so the analogy I would come up with is we all think cannibalism is bad, right? But imagine we were trying to get people off it and we were selling, you know, frozen food with packaging that said, tastes like real Christian missionary. You know, I mean, there's a a moral disconnect there that I could never get my head around. But, um... I think that uh, uh, part of the biggest problem with vegans, uh, just to get close this out, it's very similar to the problem with atheists. People don't like talking to vegans about veganism, and there is something hardwired in us. There's, there's I write about this a little bit in my forthcoming book. Food is one of the most essential um, sources of identity and meaning in our lives. It's why we going back tens of thousands of years. We have um, all the the important occasions in our lives, um, from feasts to fasts, involve food in some way. Uh, Kosherism is all about a covenant with God. I mean, there's all these things about food and feasts and sharing food and the family dinner. Leon Cass is the hungry soul. Great work on this. That's right. And investing in, we invest these things in food, and so when someone tells you, that the food of your forefathers or the food that your mother made you when you skinned your knee, like in Ratatouille or whatever it is, um, is evil or murder, people have a non-rational, reflexive, angry response. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the reasons why conservatives are so hard to talk about talk about this kind of stuff, too. It's sort of like talking about abortion to some liberals. It, it pings the center of the brain that doesn't want to hear an argument. It just wants to put the defenses up.
2: Yeah.
1: Two things I want to say about this, just briefly. Um, I remember a tweet that went viral after one of the hurricanes in the fall, uh, that showed a the vegan section of a supermarket. Oh, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, all the other shelves were empty. Yeah, the whole place had
0: been ransacked, and yeah, all the vegan food was still there.
1: In Houston. Um, but about cannibalism, this really isn't going to help my like quasi serial killer reputation. Uh, but. Scientists are... It might help get rid of the
0: quasi. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah.
1: Just go whole hog, or, or whole, uh, whole human, as it were. But scientists are apparently not that far away from being able to recreate or generate uh, artificially grown human meat in a lab, which I assume could then be sold for consumption. Mm-hmm. I would not want to eat this, but like, do you think people would actually eat fake, or not fake, but like real human meat, but not from a human?
0: Well, I, would there be ethical issues to that? I think there would be ethical issues. I don't think people would want to eat it, but I, I am in favor of growing meat in artificial ways if we can make it economical.
1: Not humans, though. Not humans, no.
0: Do, do you think that the case for veganism is stronger on moral grounds or on nutritional grounds? I have, look, I mean, Arthur Brooks of the yeah. American Enterprise Institute is, I would say, the healthiest looking policy yes. wonk in on Western civilization. <laughs> and he's uh, a huge health nut, and he's a vegan. I gather for some people it works. But one of the things I learned when I was doing the low-carb thing is that different diets work for different people. People have different metabolisms. Yeah. I don't necessarily buy that it's a cure-all for everybody. But I just don't know. Yeah.
2: And speaking of that. Arthur, he has a funny story about his his wife's a vegan, too. And so during the 2012 election, they had a bumper sticker that said, Vegans, and underneath in small text, For Romney.
0: And he, <laughs> and he was pretty sure it was the only one driving around D.C. with a, with a bumper sticker like that. Um, if only Vegans for Romney turned out in bigger numbers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the missing cohort. I,
1: I think I think that's why he didn't win Ohio. Yeah, they, I, they just I, didn't show up. They right.
0: weren't excited. That's right. They their dog that didn't bark.
2: <laughs> um, all right, so what's next? Uh, so now we're about to hit Oscar season. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the Oscars? Do you care about them? Do you watch them? Are you really excited for Fast and Furious 8 to get nominated for something did that come out this yeah. year um no I he don't... watched it this
0: year so, oh that's yeah, right on a plane a, yeah I did. in response to a twitter vote <laughs> i did and i uh it was really kind of fun to watch my my iq points just sort of <laughs> evaporate <laughs> off of my forehead um uh i don't know the oscars i used to be more interested in them but i used to see almost all the movies i don't i i partly because my daughter loves going to the movies And so I only have so much time to see movies, and so she usually wins these debates. Yeah. Now that she's getting a little older, the diversity of them is getting better, but I don't get like... I'm not like, you know, some fancy pants movie reviewer like Sonny Bunch or or John Podoritz, and I don't get screeners of these things. Yeah. Um, and, And I... I don't like the Oscars themselves because it's just an opportunity for moral preening from elites. But this year it might actually be pretty interesting for sociological reasons. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, if if they had any conscience or self awareness, they should all just come in wearing sackcloth. Yeah. Uh-huh. But um, uh,
1: another reason that you probably haven't seen as many of the movies up for Oscars is uh, John Padore has explained this in a recent glop, how Harvey Weinstein, who's now been driven from public life, basically pioneered this model of the the Oscar movie that ends up winning all the awards being. A movie that no one sees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so like why would you see I don't know
2: <laughs> The Remnant?
1: Well <laughs> the the Revenant,
2: The know. revenant, sorry, yeah. yeah. Hey, 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 <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, the well, I thought the revenant was a pretty that was a pretty brutal. I didn't movie. mind that. I, I yeah. saw the revenant. But like also on a plane. I don't know. I'm something like uh I don't know, Shakespeare in Love or Yeah. I don't know. I can't think of the thing. I can't even think of the movies. They're now so obscure. But he so that would explain why you you're not paying attention to these Oscar movies because they're now like niche products. That's
0: that is some of that. Um, oh, uh, that, just because you brought up Shakespeare in Love, that reminds me of something I wanted to bring up. About three days ago on Twitter, there were rumors that a major chef was going to be exposed in sexual, the sexual. The next one to go in the purge, and um, and people started guessing and. I put it out there in advance of the announcement um, that I said, "Look, if we're gonna have a betting pool on this, I'm betting it's Batali," and I just want for the record to show that I was right. Mm-hmm. And people got mad at me because, like, well, if you knew something, you should have reported it, and if you didn't know something, it's irresponsible of you to, you know, have conjecture about these kinds of things. I'm like, eh, okay, whatever. But I, I want to explain why I thought it was going to be Batali. Uh, he, first of all, he get, First of all, there, one of the major trends in the sexual harassment stuff is from dudes. Who clearly on an even playing on an equal playing field could not get a lot of chicks. Yeah, and but they get powerful, and they use their power to exploit or to harass or to dominate women underneath them, figuratively or literally. And I remember my wife and I are kind of foodies, and we watched this special on PBS, this series that he did with um, Gwyneth Paltrow. And, oh no! You know, and so. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, who I have all sorts of criticism of some of the stupid things that she says, but she's easy on the eyes. I think we can all agree on that. And uh, I don't want to be—I don't want to do any fat shaming or anything like that. I will consciously uncouple from anyone who says that she's not easy on the eyes. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) It's it's, just—it's—and—and meanwhile, if they did a live-action version of The Simpsons, Mario Batali could be the comic book guy. I mean, he looks (laughs) like exactly like him, right? And what was so creepy about it, really made my wife's skin crawl, was how Batali kept saying these sort of weird, subtle things about how they were, in not so many words, they were both beautiful people. <laughs> and this is a this is life that people like us live, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like um, an alien from Mars would think that Batali and Gwyneth Paltrow were different species, yeah. you know, and and then there's all, he also does so much virtue signaling and that's another sub-theme in all of this is these sort of liberal men who think they can buy, sort of they like buy indulgences by spouting feminist or liberal platitudes. I mean, that was the whole Mara, uh, Weinstein thing where he thought he could get away with it if he just went after the NRA. And so it just made a lot of sense to me. But I apologize for being accurate in my prediction to anybody who was offended. All right, so we should go on.
1: Yeah, I think it makes more sense just to sort of summarize these questions rather than read them verbatim. I think that's probably right. That That way we'll get through more of them. So... There were two questions about uh, motivating bright but lazy teenage boys. And you've written in the past about how you were one of these at one point. And so the, the questioner specifically asked you to answer these questions drawing from your own experience. Ah,
0: um, I, 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 I'll do something very quick here, I guess. But um, as we mentioned with the Steve Hayward podcast, uh, I actually do want to do a sort of, you know, life lessons for for young people, kind of thing, with maybe Charles Murray, who wrote a great book called "The Curmudgeon's Guide to What Was It?" Curmudgeon's, curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead. To Getting Ahead.
1: Also, the Curmudgeon's Guide to Not Making Charles Murray Mad at You. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's that's basically what it really is. <laughs> this is
0: like if you want to avoid Charles Murray saying, "Get away from me, kid. You bother me." Read that book. But um, but uh, you know, I think it's really important for underachieving kids to be reminded that they can do better. I think this is a real problem in our culture where, you know, the sort of everyone gets a trophy. Whatever your kid draws, you say, that's fantastic. And, you know, what my dad did with me to a certain extent, and my mom too, was, you know, give me encouragement and unconditional love and and all sorts of other things. But they dropped these little time bombs in my head Mm -hmm. about how, You know, if you stay on this path, you're going to screw up and you're going to be unhappy. And at some point, you're going to have to take your life seriously. You know, my dad was much more eager for me to start taking my life seriously right now. (laughs) Um, But uh, and so I think that, like, just letting your kids get by with, you know, whatever effort they sort of phone in. It's very hard to get them to put in their best effort, but reminding them over time that, you know, it's not their best effort and that at some point. Uh, some real work is going to be required if you actually want to live up to your potential and not feel like you wasted your life. I mean, to this day, I remember my dad looking at my brother and I playing um, Atari fighter. I think it was the the original Atari combat. And uh, my, for Lord knows how many hours, and my dad comes in and, and just disgustedly says, I don't think you guys appreciate how much time you were wasting of your life. And the way he said it and the look of disgust on his face has stuck with me ever since. And it took a while for me to internalize that. After all, I still have a vague scar on my left thumb Mm -hmm. from the reverse button on the Defender video game um, because I spent so much time playing that. But eventually I I, I took things seriously. But we'll revisit this another time. I mean, neither of you guys were underachievers types, right? Uh no, but I did have
1: uh, one of the most important uh, non-parental adults in my high school years. Uh, often selectively de- deployed the word "disappointed," mm-hmm. he, and I, I asking him about this now. He tells me that he he deals primarily with uh, high school boys, mm-hmm. so he he says that this is one of the most powerful weapons at his disposal. That word, disappointed. I mean, I, yes,
2: I was an oldest child, so the the. The expectation bar was very high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's a problem. Yeah. Um, Well, it it worked out okay, but it was (laughs) uh, hard to live up to So We'll we'll (laughs) be the (laughs) (laughs) judge. That's true. I shouldn't assume. Uh, What's next?
1: Uh, There were lots of readers who were asking about uh, must-read conservative books or thinkers, uh, like a guide of which ones to start with or where to dive in, because it's a very vast world. One of the benefits of conservatism is we have all these books and thinkers, and we're all such nerds, but it can be sort of daunting.
0: So um, I've written a couple of G-Files over the last 20 years on this subject, and um, uh, maybe it's a good subject for a fuller podcast. Maybe we get John Miller in here, who's, you know, an old friend and does the book. It's still called Bookmonger? He, he has two book-related podcasts now. But, yeah, Bookmonger is
1: one that's more of, like, modern stuff that's coming out, that just came out. And then he has the Great Books podcast, which is on great books. Great Books, Paradise, right. Paradise Lost, Brothers K.
0: But John also, like has, I think, all of Russell Kirk memorized Um, and knows all that stuff. Uh, You know, look, I've done two podcasts... Two of the last three podcasts have basically been riffs in one way or another about George Nash's, the conservative intellectual movement, since 1945. Uh, I think that is a great place to start. It teaches you a bunch of things. First of all, it just teaches you a a general, really good narrative background of where modern conservatism comes from. But it also... uh, sort of shows you that a lot of the debates that we, you think we're having today are new are actually repeats of, in, of long-standing schisms and divides that go way back on the right, you know, the fight between the establishment and the populists and all the rest. Other books that I think are worth reading, um, I think Tom Sowell's Conflict of Visions is extremely useful. I think uh, the portable conservative reader, which just has excerpts from a wide, wide array of of conservatives is great for sort of dipping in and out. A book I've talked about a lot um, over the years is called Prejudices by Robert Nisbet. It's one of my favorite books. It was sort of the inspiration for my last book, Tyranny Clichés. Um, and one of the great things about it is I it's it's just a bunch of standalone essays on, on various topics, and you can dip into it and dip out of it wherever you want. I used to call it the greatest intellectual bathroom reading in the last 50 years. Um, nice. Yeah. Uh, but you know, just because it's short, digestible, yeah. Yeah. you know, one essay per session kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, like, we we are men here. We know of what I speak. And- <laughs> Bathrooms are um, great places to read. They are. They are. Um, although, there was a scholar here, I will not name names, who was in a bathroom stall recently dictating an email, Oh, which I just thought was a really bad look. Do you, do you think like-
2: the poop emoji started showing up, I, I and I don't. That's,
0: that's the,
1: I don't think iPhone technology is quite there yet, <laughs> yeah. um, but it will be someday.
0: Other books, I think. I think the there's a great great debate in Western civilization about whether or not where uh, closing the American mind becomes unreadable. Mm. Um, uh, but I would certainly say that the first few chapters of it are great. Um, there's a wonderful essay that I think a wonderful book that was really started as a commentary essay by a guy named Robert Goldwin called "Why Blacks, Women, and Jews Aren't Mentioned in the Constitution," and is a fantastic thing to give to a high school or college kid to understand that, like the Three Fifths Clause, wasn't the racist thing that people think it is. I mean, it was not good, but it was not good because it was a compromise with slavery. It didn't say that slaves were three fifths of a human being. I don't know. Uh, there are a bunch of anthologies. Charles Kessler, one of Buckley, did a book called uh, "Keeping the Tablets." That's pretty useful. A guy named Peter Witonski did a four-volume collection of conservative writings. Um, I actually, um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, you know, there's a l- liberal fascism. One well, could read liberal fascism, which has a lot of this stuff in it. Um, uh, but I also, I also think. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it would be a little easier if I just went through my sort of my conservative bookshelves, um, but I think those are good places to start. I think if you read some of the collections, you'll it, it'll sort of it's sort of like choose your own adventure. It will make references to other things yes. that you'll get into, and at the same time, it is not like I. If John Miller hears this podcast, he's going to shoot out my porch light because. Um, <laughs> I really don't think you should read The Conservative Mind, at least not first. The uh, Conservative Mind by Russell Kirk, hugely influential, hugely important, but was also, I just think, is sort of gothic and cobwebby and very difficult to get through.
1: Interesting word choice because uh, Russell Kirk also wrote, like, gothic horror.
0: Yeah, he wrote ghost, <laughs> ghost stories and all that kind of stuff. He was an interesting dude. Um, or he, a cape. He was one of the cape wearers. There's a whole tradition of conservative cape wearers. Oh, I should, I, I, I should uh, flagellate myself. you got to read some Hayek. Friedrich Hayek um, is my yeah. grind. I don't think you should start with The Road to Serfdom, even though that's the most famous and probably the most accessible, um, because that was really sort of a polemical uh, call to arms unless a, 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 a sustained philosophical argument. Uh, one essay, everyone, if I can make everybody who has anything to do with policy read... Uh, would be the the use of knowledge in society, or I think the uses of knowledge, the uses in of the knowledge in society, fantastic and important essay. Mm-hmm. But if there was a thin, easy to digest book, uh, it's got to be the Fatal Conceit. There's some debate because it was written at the end of his life and co-written with somebody else about whether it represents Hayek's pure thinking or not. That doesn't matter as an introduction to his stuff. It's fantastic, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think that's a. Fair place. I'll keep noodling this. I'm sure I left out a lot, but so on basically
2: the exact same intellectual plane. What are the three Twitter handles that you need to follow in the conservative space? <laughs> um.
0: Well, this is this is tough. Um,
1: You're gonna make somebody mad.
0: Yeah, no, I know. And what is the? This is a Latin phrase that William F. Buckley always used to use, which means to uh, to uh, include is to exclude.
1: Yes, I. I... If my if my Latin were more up to snuff then I would be able to recite right. it. Right. So it's the
0: problem is like whenever you do thank yous at an event, right? Yeah. You always leave one person out. That's why Buckley would often just not name people because he was afraid to like you know, once you start naming people, yeah. you you're you, the downside risk of not naming somebody important is huge. Um so I don't know, I would say Is this like a this is like a desert island thing? Yeah. All right. So well, first of all, we have to exclude all the dog accounts that I follow. Yeah. Yeah. Um um though, you know, Thoughts of Dog and The Doggest um are probably my two favorite dog Twitter accounts. Thoughts of Dog is fantastic. Thoughts of Dog is very yeah. well done. Although sometimes his vocabulary gets a little implausible. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, it doesn't for a dog. true to his character. Like yeah. a, no, I mean
0: the, the 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 grammar I think is exactly right, yeah. but the sometimes the vocabulary is just, you know, that's Maybe a border collie, right. but not, <laughs> not, not, not a, a lab. That you know, doesn't use some of those words. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, you know, it depends what you use Twitter for. I mean, so part of the problem is, is that I use Twitter as, as sort of like an RSS feed to see what I should read, yeah. right? And so I think of the people who are very good at pointing me towards stuff worth reading are um, uh, Carlos Lozada from the Washington Post, um, Ross Douthat. Who else? No, i mean i just i feel i feel nervous because there's so many people i could piss off by not mentioning you know my uh my favorite podcast uh is russ roberts econ talk and he often has really interesting stuff to look at um in terms of uh just general crap throwing like a monkey at the zoo um i think comfortably smug is probably the best yeah um john Podoritz. i mean it Let's be clear, I have a better Twitter feed than, than John Bedort's does, but his is actually pretty good. It's just a testament to how much how good mine is that I'm better. Yeah,
1: yeah and you can't pick your own Twitter account. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right.
0: And um yep. I just wanted to get that in there for the clarity's point. And then uh I don't I, I Rod Dreher, I think sometimes points to some interesting stuff. Um who am I leaving out?
1: Um, well, frankly, I mean, the premise of this question was like, if you were stuck on a desert island and had to follow three Twitter accounts, which would they be? And if I were stuck on a desert island, the last thing I would be concerned about would be Twitter. I would be like <laughs> grateful that I didn't have to worry about it. Yeah. I
0: mean, that, that's the thing, right? If I, the three Twitter accounts that I would want to follow on Desert Island would be purely like some weird dude survivalist tips <laughs> yeah. kind of thing or how to get water out of a palm tree and that kind of thing. I really don't need like Sunny Bunch, you know, defending. You know, the, the destruction of Alderaan when I'm on a desert island. But um, we should hold off for one second uh, and get back to our sponsor. As I said at the top of the show was Donors Trust. It's no secret that the best policy ideas are not coming from politicians. Instead, they're coming from the think tanks, public, public interest law centers and other principled individuals and groups from around the country. And the best ones are those that do not rely on government money to operate. If I were doing this as Donald Trump, I would say, so important, so important, as I looked up from the teleprompter. If you want to help move the ideas of liberty forward, invest your charitable giving in those doing the real work of conservative causes. And the simplest way to do this is through Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, you'll simplify your giving and receive excellent tax benefits all in a way that gives you an additional layer of privacy. All donor-advised funds offer the same basic services, but Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. So go to DonorsTrust.org Dingo for your free investing in liberty guide that gives practical advice on how to identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. As we near the end of 2017, Donors Trust is the partner you need. The stock market is booming and the tax code is changing. Donors Trust experts can help you navigate all of this and equip you to give in a way that best benefits you, your family, and the principles you hold dear. Visit Donors Trust forward slash dingo. Now to download a free copy of your helpful guide, discover a better way to support the conservative values you believe in. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo, D-I-N-G-O. If I can follow up real quickly, has Twitter, this is
2: another question from a reader, has Twitter changed your writing style or how you write? Like, there's a lot of talk about it shortening people's attention span, the social media instant gratification loop.
1: And destroying society. <laughs> and, and destroying society in general. What was so, the question? Sorry. It changes how,
0: it changes the process a bit. I find myself, you know, writing three paragraphs. Like I'm doing a column, I'll write a few paragraphs, and then I'm not sure where to go, and I'll go hide in Twitter for a little while. It certainly changes the process by which I intake information and news, but that's not, you know, a shocking insight. I think it's been very bad for blogging. Yeah, Rich Lowry yells at me all the time that I don't do enough for the corner, and part of the problem is is that the corner was sort of a pre-Twitter phenomenon. The corner is the group blog for National Review. And the ability, the ease of just dashing off an idea in a few, in 140 characters or 280 characters, whatever, and just letting it fly to a more diverse audience um, is very seductive. And and meanwhile, for internal reasons and all the rest, the corner posts are blogging. Is, is getting more and more complicated and yeah. less just sort of dash off kind of thing because you have to do SEO and they want image links and all this kind of stuff. In terms of uh, how I write, not really. I mean, I think it's changing the language like hashtag this, hashtag yeah. that, all that crap. And it's, it's mainstreaming meme culture in a way that you sort of have to be attentive to in, in a certain way. I think its biggest impact is that it, it gives you a, not necessarily inaccurate, but distorted sense about what the news of the moment, the most important story of the day is, or what, what you know, because there's just, it creates mobs and group things yeah. so quickly, like I, algae plumes, but and I but I, I, I haven't noticed how it actually, sort of, when I'm actually in the zone, writing changes how I write. Have you started using your 280 characters? I'm ashamed to say I have. Not often, I think it is useful when you're in a direct argument with somebody and you just want to sort of give your your self-defense. But I try to do it sparingly. I will say Twitter, like when I open up my Twitter app,
2: it hasn't – the look of it hasn't changed as much as I expected it to. Yeah, yeah. But not a ton of people are taking it. And part of that I think is they haven't opened ads on Twitter up to more than 140 characters still. Yeah. So if you're doing a promoted tweet, it still is the same.
1: Mm. All right, we should move into fun questions now, I think. Okay. Um, So we'll start with a fun question. A lot of uh, listeners were asking about your favorite kinds of cigar, scotch, whiskey, and bourbon. Okay,
0: so this is easy. Um, For under $20, my favorite cigar um, these days, no offense to um, H. Upman, which advertises in National Review and provides cigars for the National Review Cruises, and they are Fine cigar brand, uh, but my favorite cigar is something called Sobra Mesa. It only came out a couple years ago. Can't remember the guy's name, but um, he had he worked on another famous cigar and then had an NDA for or non compete clause for a while, and then he came out with this sort of line of his own and this is by far my favorite cigar. It goes for about thirteen fifty. Um, I also like the Illusion uh, cigars, Epernay um, and whatnot. Padrones are great, but now you're talking about north of, of 20 bucks. I want to do a cigar episode of The Remnant and get my tobacconist in here. Uh, this guy, uh, Granville Smith from Signature Cigars, which is, which I, as, as Jack can attest, I am, is my office away from the office. And I actually mentioned them in the acknowledgments of my forthcoming book. (laughs) Um, uh, and it is, uh, one of my favorite places to be. And, um, But I just want to say that I think Cuban cigars are wildly overrated. Um, It's like Cuba. (laughs) Yes, but indifferent. You know, um, the reason Cuban cigars are overrated is that the brand is just such a premium that they. I'm not cheap, but I will buy a can of. Cashews at the grocery store rather than eat the $14 jar at an expensive hotel because it just enrages me that they're ripping me off. Uh-huh. And that's what Cuban cigars are. They're they're if, if you can get real ones, because there's so many counterfeit ones out there. Yeah. The, the Cubans from Dominica. Yeah. The Dominican yeah, no, Republic, like, right. And they can't keep I mean Cuba just can't keep up with the right. demand and their their quality uh, assurance programs are awful. But uh if you can get a real Cuban cigar, it's a great cigar. It's just not twice as good right. as a competing Dominican or Nicaraguan one. And so that's why it's different than Cuba itself. Cuba is not as good as it's lived up to be because socialism doesn't work, and it's an authoritarian crap hole that immiserates its people and keeps them from participating fully in life and the world economy.
1: We're all going to get uh, sonic attacks now. That's right, <laughs> um, because of what
0: we're saying. In terms of Scotch, I like—I really like these Glen Morangi products, uh, Quinta Ruban, and there's a Quinta Ruban, and oh. I'm spacing it maybe because I drank too much of it last night, I'm <laughs> celebrating the one more thing. I like this Bowini or Bal balvenie, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, I like the scotches that are the single malts that are a little on the su- are on the sweeter side that are finished in like sherry casks or pork casks and that kind of thing. I really don't like Lagavulin and the the ones that taste like you took. Your lawnmower bag and made tea out of it. Um, it's just it's so peaty, but I'm also very partial partial to Irish whiskey, and that would mean Jameson's. And what was the last question? Or the last uh,
1: cigar, scotch, whiskey, bourbon.
0: I'm not a bourbon guy. I've been trying to be more of a bourbon guy. I don't particularly for the same reason. I don't like Lagavulin and that stuff. I don't like the charcoaly taste too much. But I'm trying. If someone wants to send me some Pappy Van Winkle or any of that kind of stuff so I can try it and really understand what they're talking about, feel free to do that. There are some bourbons that I would rather drink than a blended scotch. But, you know, I would rather have my um, hand gnawed off by a half-starved wolverine than my face gnawed off by a Mm half-starved wolverine. It's not necessarily a great uh, endorsement. I have an important question. How do you like your cigar cut? Oh, a straight cut. Straight cut. I mean, every now and then I'll do a punch, particularly... If I don't have a straight cutter and I have to use, they could take a part of a ballpoint pen and yeah. shove it in there. Yeah. yeah for MacGyver. All
1: right. I know we, we said we weren't going to directly read these questions verbatim, but this one I think needs to be read verbatim. Uh, it says, I believe you should discuss the proposition that Al Gore believes he is Jor El. For non nerds, that's Superman's uh... father. Yes, father. That's right. This is a nerd error here. Uh el trying to save the world... From... Oh, no, 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 that's not an error, because that's what jor was trying to do. He was trying to save Krypton from being destroyed. Uh-huh. Anyway, trying to save the world from destruction. Sorry, reader or listener, but he is really Ra's al Ghul, whose goal is a world in perfect environmental balance, which can only be accomplished by eliminating most of humanity. Um, so let's
0: discuss that proposition. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think I mentioned this. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, um, but... I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast. I, I've written a couple times the case for Al Gore being an alien, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was born nine months after the incident at Roswell. He uses all sorts of strange language that is typical of aliens in various movies where he just, you know, um, you know, he, he says things that you would expect. And the syntax is sort of like what you would expect from an alien, you know? And I remember having a bunch of examples, but it's been a while. And then
1: the way he stood over George W. Bush at the 2000 town hall debate is very like unhuman.
0: Yeah, no, there's that. Well, he's got an uncanny valley problem, right? Um, which is very similar to Mitt Romney, but not, not. Mitt Romney's problem wasn't as bad as Al Gore's. You know, Al Gore is surprisingly lifelike, and the. And I think I would said this before, but you know, he once called to complain to the Washington Post that they had a picture of Planet Earth. Upside down, hmm. and um, which is just a very Twilight Zone strange... theme. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, I do think that there is a very deep course of romanticism that runs through Al Gore's stuff. If you go back and you read Earth and the Balance, which I have for for unknown reasons, there's all of the stuff about how uh, you know the Enlightenment was bad, Francis Bacon messed us up, that we need to restore the unity of our uh, of mind and spirit and body and environment and all these kinds of things it's very sort of angry romantic anti-cartesian stuff and and it always makes me you know want to you know it always tingles my spider sense but um whether he's in fact raz al ghul or jor you know these, these are questions above my pay grade because i'm not a dc guy that's <laughs> I, right I like how you just blamed Descartes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like...
1: uh, another fun question. Uh, what is your favorite board game?
0: Oh, I'm a traditionalist on this. Um, I'm a Monopoly guy. Um, I think, although I think it's outrageous that that one company has a monopoly on the game Monopoly. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I, um, I used to love Clue. I've been teaching my daughter, I've been playing Stratego for a while with my daughter. I'm a big Stratego guy. Yeah. Um but yeah, I'm a Monopoly guy. What about you guys?
2: Played that all the time growing up. Would get into big fights over whether or not trade, you know, whether or not like that trade was fair between yeah. two other people. Yeah. It's a it's a good it's a good uh, always be selling lesson, life lesson.
1: I was uh, my family were Scrabble people, but now I'm trying to get them into the the eight-dimensional chess that Trump plays. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um it's it's worked out so well for me. Um, yeah. Do you play Monopoly?
1: No, not really. Okay, so,
0: uh, Michael, money in the free parking, money for free parking, or not money for free? Oh yeah. Parking? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So you can stay on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the, I regret to inform listeners that this will be my last episode. <laughs> the right.
1: um, nice being here, so I'm going to take advantage of it. So we actually, one of what I thought was the most fascinating listener queries was someone who has a theory about Trump's pants comment.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So you want to explain this just briefly for
0: people who don't? Sure. Know. If you did in the first or second podcast, I think I explained this with that that Ben Sass guy. Um, who is Who is he? I don't know. Uh, I think he's working at a frosty freeze somewhere right now. But um,
1: <laughs> or no, he does stadium concessions.
0: That's right, he does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But he also <laughs> drove Uber. Uh, anyway, uh, back to the issue at hand. So during the in late 2015, when Trump and I were Having Twitter fights and all the rest, and then um, I wrote a I wrote well, I wrote more than one column about Donald Trump. And uh, shock. at some point, a reporter, I think from a local NBC station, read something I wrote in the LA Times or elsewhere and said, uh, and asked him for comment. And, and Donald Trump said, uh, and I know this is going to shock some listeners, um, to hear him hear that he bragged, but he said. I went to the best schools, I built this amazing business, I have more money than, you know, Caricious or whatever, Um, and I got to take this from, you know, Jonah Goldberg, a guy who doesn't even know how to buy pants, Mm -hmm. and I've been getting pants jokes of every conceivable variety and Stripe ever since.
1: Yeah, when I, this happened the first week that I worked for you, and the first time that I saw you, I had a pair of pants with me,
0: just Uh in case. (laughs) Yeah, see, there's a lot of this kind of stuff, and... The worst part, that part about it for me was I was at the Seattle uh, port uh, cruise port where you get on a national review cruise and there are like 10, 12 cruise ships there and there's thousands of people getting on different cruises and scattered among them are a couple hundred national review cruisers, right? But among this huge throng and, and there I am in this, you know, snaking line trying to get, you know, my, to get aboard the boat. And all of a sudden, just random people from, like, 10 lines over and and 20 feet ahead and 10 feet behind start yelling pants jokes at me. (laughs) And if you didn't know who I was or you didn't know anything about this, which would be, like, the position of, like, 95%, (laughs) 99.9% of the people there, it was just a very strange thing. Hey, you're wearing pants! You know? (laughs) Everyone else is, like, looking. Why wouldn't that guy, you know, be wearing pants? And um, (laughs) But since then, like... Literally, I have. There is no pants joke I have not heard. So. Yeah. All right. So anyway, uh, go on. But
1: the reader has a theory as to why, because we've we've been trying to figure out why Trump said this. Yeah. Uh, and the, the reader has a theory. Okay. So the we're, listener. I keep
0: thinking the reader. What What's the theory?
1: That, so you, a couple days beforehand, you you tweeted out that you went on a Fox show, uh-huh. uh, which they don't usually show from the waist down. Uh-huh. So, But you went on a Fox show and the pair of pants you were wearing had a hole in them somewhere. Uh-huh. And you tweeted out that you were shocked that none of the people you were on this the Fox show with pointed that out to you. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so the reader, the listener theory is that Trump saw this tweet that you put out and deduce from it that, ergo, you cannot buy pants.
0: Yeah, okay. So, (laughs) as I would say, the world's foremost expert on this subject, um, (laughs) I've heard this theory before. Okay. It is a plausible theory. I think one day, historians, um, there will be a school of historians that thinks that this is the answer, right? (laughs) There's some problems with it. First of all, you described the tweet I had a little wrong. I had hung out in the green room for a long time. Oh, okay. And there was a rip in the back of my pants, which no one had pointed out to me um, but the, the gist is the same right yeah. and so like people in the green room didn't point out to me even though I was like standing at the coffee maker and they could have said something um, so there are a couple of problems with this first of all Donald Trump has never followed me on Twitter mm, okay so for him to have said this would mean that which is, I guess somewhat flattering that he had some crew or researcher, some Jack Butler of his own, go back... Or the same Jack Butler. (laughs) 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 Dum-dum-dum. Go back through days-old tweets of mine to find this pants thing.
1: It was about a three-day lag.
0: Okay, so Don Trump's kind of busy on the campaign trail, right? He doesn't follow me on Twitter. And yet somehow he comes up with this pants jab that no one else... We'll get because no, I mean, I mean, it was like, you know, three, three days ago on Twitter is a friggin' eternity, right? Yeah. So it's possible. I just don't understand how it would be brought to his attention, why we'd have the presence of mind to bring it up, or why he would think people watching this interview would be like, ah, yeah, because Jonah had a hole in his pants three days ago and you got him, you know, and I just, I'm not sure I buy it. I think it's, he has a burner Twitter account. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. have say yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, oh. I, I said the problem with this theory is that it is inconceivable to me that Donald Trump has the self-discipline That's not true. to what tweet do do? on his burner account. <laughs> Another school of thought on this, just since you brought this up, because again, I've spent some time yeah. trying to figure out what this thing is. <laughs> yeah. For years, I used to begin speeches where I'd walk up to the podium, and the first thing I would say is, Huh, if I knew you guys were going to give me a podium, I wouldn't have worn pants. Yeah. And, uh, and there were a lot of people who thought maybe it was a reference to that. Similar problem. Yeah. The idea that Donald Trump caught, like, on YouTube or C SPAN, my speech at, like, St. Olaf's College in, 19, you know, in 2014 <laughs> just seems implausible. And you've never
1: given a speech in which he was in the audience. No,
0: I have not. Okay. Um, and, uh, I think the odds of that happening now are even slimmer. <laughs> I think this is one of these things. It's like, was Plato serious when he wrote when he was writing about the Republic, or was he being ironic? It's unanswerable. What Donald Trump meant by me not being able to buy pants is is just one of the mysteries of all time.
1: Yeah, I, I look forward to the all these historical schools developing and the sort of Canticle for Leibowitz post uh, apocalyptic landscape, and the, there will just be a, entire uh, orders of monks pouring over old tweets stored in the National Archives. I think that's exactly what's
0: going to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. All right. So we. Are, how much time do we have left?
1: Oh, well, we've been going for almost an hour and 10 minutes. That's usually where we cut off. But I think there's one last question that needs to be asked.
0: Okay. There are a couple other things I, I want to bring up, too. So okay. So
1: this will be the last question, then. Why why did we skip 11? Why is there no episode 11 of The
0: Remnant? Well, Jack, you weren't, you weren't supposed to bring up this question. This is, you know, I mean... One day we will answer this question. For those of you who don't know what Jack is talking about, um, if you go to iTunes or any of the conventional bourgeois platforms that provide this podcast, you'll see that uh, episode, it goes from episode 10 to episode 12, and lots of people want to claim that this is some sort of error. Um, it's not an error. It is a mystery. And one day we will explain it, um if we told you we'd have to kill you yeah i mean it it, it it is by the absence of the eleven that the eleven reveals itself,
1: yes, I was about to say that Straussians may be better equipped to uh penetrate the mystery of the missing eleven than others, so That's I'll leave it. it at that yeah
0: so and 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 I'll refer back to what we recorded in episode eleven from time to time, which um you know was really really fantastic I mean
1: I can't oh man i'm just, I'm still yeah uh, getting over episode eleven
0: it was amazing and um um. The music but uh, one thing all right so a couple other uh, house items we didn't do much corrections or clarifications from previous episodes but one thing that has been driving me nuts about the trade podcast with um, Scott Linsicum is that nowhere in our freewheeling discussion about trade policy did I ask or discuss uh, trade deficits which is supposedly the end of the universe and all terrible things and it just seems really weird to talk about trade policy and why trade is good and just never broach the subject. And I'm sure we'll have opportunities to talk about trade again another time, but I think that the, uh, the, my, my own position on trade deficits is simply that they are overblown in their importance. Uh, countries don't trade with each other. Uh, consumers and businesses trade with other consumers and businesses. And that a trade deficit is actually the results in an investment surplus. And the idea that lots and lots and lots of countries going to are selling us stuff cheaper than we can make it is not necessarily a disaster for the American economy, but we'll get but we'll cover all of that another time. I just want to acknowledge that it was a really stupid oversight on my part not to talk about trade deficits with a guy who could really talk about trade deficits. Um, Michael, you had something you wanted to bring up. Well, uh, Politico just reported that Republicans
2: have struck a final tax reform deal. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, does it
0: say point. what's in it? Not yet. We'll read. We'll read it when it comes out.
1: <laughs> you know, actually, in episode eleven, we said what was going to be. In
0: <laughs> you know, I, I'm really. That's why I ask because I think our predictions are going to turn out to be true. Yeah. Um. And when we find, you know, years from now, when we finally do the um, explainer on episode eleven, we'll just call it. This podcast goes to eleven. Um, but that's another. That's for another day. Oh, also, uh, my friend Scott Hall. Uh, who I've brought up a couple times, the inventor of the Scott Hall Martini. Uh, he says that he is still getting calls and emails from people um, about references to him on this podcast. And um, he asked me to sort of keep, keep it up, but keep denigrating him till at the end. You know, he's just sort of a ridiculous Roy Moore-like figure. Um, I'm not going to do that to him because he's such a good guy. But for those of you who want to try it, the Scott Hall Martini, I believe and who missed that podcast, is um, equal parts vodka and gin both chilled to 33 degrees with nothing else in them, no vermouth or anything else. And what's weird is that the two liquors at that temperature sort of cancel each other out, and it's sort of like just drinking cold air. <laughs> um which, which we were doing this morning. Yeah, which is which is, if that's your thing, it's kind of cool. Um, if you wait for it to warm up, it it quickly becomes jet fuel. Um, which but, can't melt steel beams. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Scott um does not believe in any garnishes, no olives, no, none of that kind of stuff, because as as Judge Bork used to say, um, that stuff is for salad. Um, <laughs> and finally. Unless you guys have uh, nothing else. Okay, so finally, I did want to bring up, because uh, I still get a lot of uh, grief, consternation, confusion about this whole Bigfoot erotica thing, and um, uh, it comes up often, and it's funny now, it's now one of these die markers that when I talk to people and I make a Bigfoot erotica reference, and they don't know what I'm talking about, it's proof that they haven't been listening to this podcast.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, so Kyle Smith, National Review's new uh, regular film critic, uh-huh. he reviewed this new uh, Guillermo del Toro movie, The Shape of Water. mm mm-hmm. And in his opening... Which sounds really good, by the way. Yeah, but in his opening, he mentions Bigfoot erotica. Yeah. Uh, so it's now being... It, Bigfoot
0: erotica is now a muse for people. I mean, I'm mean, i, I I'm not sure I want them as advertisers, <laughs> but I, I do think that, like, I should get something for my efforts here. But I decided I wanted to do more weird stuff. You know, if you read the Goldberg file, my newsletter that you can sign up for at nationalreview.com, you'll note that um, every... Ep, every uh, edition of it ends with a whole bunch of crazy weird links to weird stories and whatnot is a long history to why I do that. And I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be doing that for this podcast as well. The problem is it's hard to top barefoot erotica, big foot erotic. Bigfoot erotica, barefoot erotica is actually pretty easy to top. Um, <laughs> in fact, most, not all, because there are some weird foot fetish yeah. or shoe fetish erotica. I, I gather, but um, most erotica actually involves bare feet.
1: I don't, I'm, I'm, Pondering why you have knowledge of all these various genres of erotica. Well, most of,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm... Oh, wait, no, no, no. We talked about it in episode eleven. Never mind. That's right. we don't have to go into yeah. that. So never mind. Sorry. But so I was talking about this with somebody, and I said, you know, we should really sort of just keep doing the weird stuff. And I was, and for some reason it popped into my head. I wonder if there's any Donald Trump erotica. And lo and behold, there is. There's a book out there on on Amazon that you can get for free for your Kindle. Um, Uh, if you are, I guess if you're a prime person called 50 shades of orange and I have it in front of me, the problem is, is that it's, first of all, the whole concept is pretty grotesque. But, um, uh, secondly, the problem is it's not, it's not sincere Donald Trump erotica as far as I can tell. Um, it's more ironic mocking erotica uh,
1: everything's ironic these
0: days no exactly i mean at least bigfoot erotica is earnest and sincere right mm-hmm. natural um, natural uh,
1: that's right vegan <laughs>
0: yeah. all right so but i i, I want to do and this this is this is really for jonathan last who you know is so invested in these things i want to read just a little bit um from 50 shades of orange this comes up very early in the book because i will be honest with you I was not interested in finding the single best paragraph in here. I found this just before we went on air.
1: And he didn't make me find it either. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, poor,
0: poor Jack is still scarred from me making him go through all the barefoot erotica.
1: Uh, maybe scarred isn't the right word.
0: Um, spent. Anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I gather the premise is this is some journalist who has to go to Trump Tower to meet with Donald Trump. From Tower, figuratively speaking. And the reason I just stopped on exactly uh, the reason I stopped on this paragraph is just because it is such a cliche um, that it just seemed perfect. So here we go. I'd never had these feelings before, not for a Republican or anyone from Queens, but there was something about him. Something about the way those luscious lunch meat lips puckered around the microphone like a constipated cat struggling to pass an undigested ham hock stolen from an unguarded family lunch. Wow. Something about the way the stage lights sparkled over the delicate orange of his face like a constipated jack-o'-lantern left out in the noonday sun.
1: Wait, constipated jack-o'-lantern? Let
0: it Let it flow over you! Sorry. <laughs> Where was I? Constipated jack-o'-lantern left out in the noonday sun. Something about his little hands circling in front of his body like a constipated pigeon, (laughs) hoping gravity would shake an olive pit loose. (laughs) And it gave my tummy the quivers like five-alarm chilly night at Gorilla Joe's Commando Meat Jack. Lord knows I've never wanted to be Hillary Clinton more than when he was stalking her around that debate stage. That lucky... Lucky woman. I <laughs> And I'll just leave it there. So there you go.
1: Well, uh, I'm not sure why constipation is the, the operative metaphor there.
0: I don't get it either. Um, but uh, I'm going to have to now delete that from my Kindle. But I think it's fair to say you are not going to get this kind of quality material. Remember, quality is a neutral term. <laughs> um, it's not a value statement. It is now. It's not a value statement <laughs> on Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. You're not going to get it. On, you know, any of the NPR podcasts. Uh, You're certainly not going to get it on the friggin' editors. Um,
1: Unless we serve as an inspiration to all of them and others.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't see Rich Lowry uh, (laughs) reading any form of erotica to anybody. Stick Under these circumstances. Um, It's possible we would do this on Glop, but now, but they're so, they don't want to, like, copy me. So anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. Keep the comments coming. By the way... We are still in the top 100 uh, news and politics podcasts out there. We hover around from the uh, mid-50s to the low 90s. It would be great. Um, if you guys haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe from one of the main sort of podcast platforms. Please keep the reviews coming. It's great. It's very helpful. And if those of you are so sickened by the reading of the Donald Trump erotica that you've 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 vomited on yourselves while driving. I apologize. Um, but please don't take it out on this podcast. I promise I'll never do that again. And please tune in next week. Uh, where uh, I'm not sure what we're gonna have on, but I'm in negotiations to see if I could land the junior senator from Nebraska. We'll talk.
1: Oh, the guy, <laughs> that the concession,
0: the state the con- and concession
1: guy. That guy.
0: So. Anyway, uh, for Michael Pratt and Jack Butler and me um, and for everybody at National Review, uh, thanks very much.